everybody. I'm back. It's Steve Govett. I'm the host of the TFL podcast. Uh, this is episode four, and uh, pretty pretty pumped about this particular episode. And and one could say that I probably should have started with this episode, which I had always always intended to do. But the good news is, um, hopefully, I'm working out kinks on the first three. Um, but had a ton of fun with the other guys. But hopefully, all of the lacrosse world and beyond recognize uh, my two guests on this show. Uh, two longtime friends of mine. Probably I could tell you that uh, my history in the National Lacrosse League doesn't even get off the ground if it's not for, for these two gentlemen. So, uh, Paul and Gary Gate, welcome to the TFL podcast. Thanks, Steve. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's always so, a pleasure to see your face. Yeah, it is. Right. So, <laughs> the, uh, the premise of the TFL podcast, as I've told a number of people, is to try and do something a little different and, you know, uh, and talk about our history in not only the game, but in the, in the mill as we started a long, long time ago, uh, and then through the National Lacrosse League. And, and hopefully we get to share some pretty cool stories with a lot of people about the, you know, the early stages of the National Lacrosse League and, and all the iterations of what it's went through. But, uh, fellas, thanks for coming. Thanks for having us. So – Let's go back right to the very beginning of this because, look, I've heard the stories and I've heard the Ron McNeil story and, and you know, I've, I've heard Dad, you know, the peppers and all that type of stuff. Let, let, tell me about who put a stick in your hand for the first time. Uh, Steve, you might need to tell us. You know, we were only four. I don't remember. I don't know, Gary, do you remember who put the stick in your hand? No, that that's too long ago. But I do remember – the fact that it was, you know, Bob Pepper, neighbor, uh, Greg and Grant Pepper, who Steve knows well, um, put his twin sons that were three houses down the street, three weeks younger than Paul and myself, into lacrosse at the age of three. Because we terrorized the neighborhood, the four of us, two sets of identical twins, three houses apart, running around the neighborhood, at three and four years old, back then the parents kind of just let us go, even at that age, because there wasn't much around us. So it was a chance to put the four of us in an organized sport. And, and so, so the peppers haven't grown since then. They were then. I remember the peppers. <laughs> like the, the fact of the matter is they were two of the toughest guys you ever want to meet, but um, – Picture this, like you guys are from, from Victoria, Brentwood Bay, more specifically in British Columbia. That's where you grew up. You started playing in Saanich. And, and I was in Burnaby, which is on the mainland, right, in Vancouver. And, and so early on, we, you guys had a rivalry with pretty much every, you know, lower mainland-based team. Um, but, but it was a really unique and dynamic because we, we kind of shared – uh, weekends together where we were kind of best friends during the day and then we kicked the living crap out of each other. Paulie, how, how, how do you remember that whole process? Well, you know, that that's Canada, right? I mean, I can remember the, the earliest times when we billeted with Burnaby, you know, some of the, the early provincial uh, tournaments and that. We would go over to Vancouver and we'd hook up with families from the opposing teams and I don't know if I ever stayed at your place but I, I don't think so but 
I probably, you know, my teammates did. Randy we were and that was part of it. So you became friends because you're staying at the person, the kid's house, you know, and then you go out and you have to compete. So it starts early in Canada. I know? do remember just to, I do remember who put the stick in my, in my hand the first time. And those NLL fans today would probably, uh, they know Ben McIntosh and Garrett McIntosh. Yeah. Uh, their grandmother uh, was the first one to bring me into the game and their dad and, and, and his brother, um, their uncle. So they were the first ones to put the stick in my hand. I think everybody in the lacrosse world regrets that at this point. Um, so they may want to take it up with the McIntosh family. Well, you know, I really – you're lucky to have that memory. I really wish I could remember. You know, you're we just so – It had way too much <laughs> So let's move on to the – you know, you guys obviously had an amazing career – at Syracuse and, and I've heard the story. So the, the one story that's probably never been told, and I don't know that we want to get into it here. It's been told one time as far as I remember it. And it was Paul, when you went into the Canadian lacrosse hall of fame and you brought everybody to tears and this show is supposed to be funny. So I don't know if you want to tell it again, but you guys went to Syracuse and an amazing career revolutionized the game, wore really short shorts and long uh, spandex and then you moved into the major indoor lacrosse league where you got rid of the short shorts and just wore the spandex. Yeah, it was easier. You didn't need the short shorts anymore. So <laughs> <laughs> we, did, we did go with the trend of the, uh, the spandex under the shorts before the uh, major indoor lacrosse league. So we tried both. but You had to have some place to put the sock. Yeah, <laughs> the two pairs of shorts or whatever people wore back then, three pairs of tights. I remember some guys trying to bulk up in their spandex tights by wearing as many as they could. Uh, <laughs> it was pretty funny. But, um, yeah, the story, the story, uh, you know, back – I went to Syracuse, uh, but before we went, we had – we wanted to take a gap year, as the Canadians and Europeans love to talk about a gap year. Um, you know, it was it was an interesting part in our life where we graduated high school, um, and then suddenly, boom! Our parents decide to get divorced, so they 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 go on their own. So Paul and I both, you know, had this opportunity. Oh. Called me up in uh, December uh, of oh, two thousand six, and. Uh, no, I'm sorry, 1980, 86. I'm, I'm hitting the head way too many times, too. I've been hitting the head a lot. So, so in, in 2000, I mean, 1986, I'm losing it. Um, a call in December from Coach Simmons asking if I would come in January instead of taking the full gap year. And, um, you know, I said, look, I, I don't want to come by myself. Um, you know, do you have that same opportunity for Paul right now? And, and coach said, I only have room for one of you, the money for one. Uh, and I said, well, I'll just wait till you have the money for both of us. And uh, we waited and, and sure enough, um, the rules changed, things changed. It took another full year to get to Syracuse. And we ended up starting in January of, uh, to, of 2007. I mean, 1997. Why am I stuck on the 2000s? I don't know. It's so 97. That's a, yes. theme. it's a theme for today. It is. It is. So, 
that's when it all started. We started with the Syracuse in uh, January and it was a couple feet of snow and it was there through April. And that was the beginning of a, 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 a fun experience and a, a birth into the world of lacrosse in the U.S. Paul, yeah. you see that story the same way? It's a like, lot less emotional when he tells it. <laughs> yeah, he's very, like, emotionless. You were in tears. I was in tears when you told the story. Like, it very was dramatic. very it's touching. Like, he just kind of, like, spends 10 seconds on it, and it's like, yeah, no, that's what we did. Yeah. Just another uh, day for him, you know, a big, big time in my life, obviously. <laughs> well, yeah, obviously. Yeah. Uh, move on, a. You guys obviously graduated with a lot of accolades and, and won a lot of games at Syracuse, and there were some great battles there and, and set the stage for an amazing career But uh, for both of you. But, but talk about the first time you walk into the Detroit Turbos locker room. Well, <laughs> let me think about that. I mean, we spent most of the preseason up at Square Lake uh, Track and Racket Center preparing and you know, as the early days of the NLL, you don't really get to see the arena until game night. So, um, Paul, Paul, it, now we practiced on a tennis court. I know that, that's how we practiced tennis court. <laughs> <laughs> so Maybe, there, that happened across the league. Like Baltimore did it. There, there was a ton of of people. Like I, know, I remember when my first practice in in Philadelphia was an indoor soccer center and. Nicholson, New Jersey, and Gary, you and I made that drive a long time, and Paulie was driving down from Syracuse because he lived there, and we'll talk, I'll talk about that in a second, but tell me about the Detroit Turbos. Like, obviously, that was a huge – it was big in Joe Lewis Arena. And, and this is a great happened. story, Steve, but it has nothing to do with Detroit as far as it being our first game. Our first game was in Baltimore. So we begun our career with an away game in Baltimore. We hadn't even been in Joe Lewis at that point. <laughs> yeah. We were, I don't know, Square Lake Racket Club. <laughs> so as far as our first experience in Detroit, that would come after a much better experience in game one. Talk about a league. This league had everything nailed. Gary and I were at a camp in Arizona for Mickey Miles Felton. So we were flying in from there. Our teammates were flying in from Toronto. And we were supposed to meet, you know, during the, the early morning, get together, get organized, and play the game. Well, it just so happens, first opening night, there's a big snowstorm. All the flights are diverted away from Baltimore. So Gary and I end up flying into Washington, D.C. And we get there, and we get there, what, what time was it, about 6.30? But an hour before the game was to start. Yeah. And then, um, you know, the rest of the guys hadn't shown up yet. There were a few guys that were American local that got there, but the bulk of the team wasn't there yet. And they started straggling in. They, they all flew into D.C. and they caught cars. Well, some of them just weren't showing up. And two of them were our goalies. So first game, welcome to the pro pros we've got a game about to start we've got half a team we've got no goalies and the league is panicking they're like what do we do you know we promoted the gate brothers we promoted the game we're in baltimore this is lacrosse central we're trying to put on a good show 
You people know, actually showed up at the storm too. They didn't cancel it, nothing. They were there. So what do they decide to do? Well, the game must go on. In typical NLL fashion, it's happened a few times after that, but the game must go on. So they're asking everyone for solutions. And it turns out that um, our equipment manager was a goalie in Pee Wee. <laughs> He's a little out of shape. He was a little older. He didn't. He hadn't played goalie in you know twenty years. But you know, it was the one thing we could think of to get the game played. So sure enough, they they go to the minor league hockey team. Do you guys have any goalie pads? So they don't even have lacrosse pads. So they found <laughs> an upper body set of goalie hockey goalie pads a pair of hockey pants, and then they couldn't find any leg guards. They wouldn't let them use goalie leg guards because, one, that would look ridiculous. But So what they did was they took them, put them in sweatpants, and started shoving anything they could find down his sweatpants <laughs> to make shin guards. So now our goalie is getting ready to start the game. A few more guys show up, still no goalie. So we're shorthanded. Uh, what, how many guys did we have, Gary? Like nine. I think we had yeah, nine guys. Nine guys and an equipment manager in that with sweatpants on. <laughs> <laughs> and we go ahead. Well, we go ahead and start, you know. I, I, I got to be honest. I couldn't believe it started. We were both like, this is professional across. You got to wait for the players. You can't play without the players. You got to <laughs> We got an equipment manager that was like 45 years old, never played in 20, 25 years. They had a TV deal then. It was on HTS. Russ and Chris had to get the game going because they had a TV deal. Oh, my God. It, it was um, – uh, so we're like, all right, here we go. You know, we're playing against John Tucker and some great players. No, John, was, uh, was he in Baltimore then, Paul? He was they were one of they were one of the better teams, and so it was the opening game. And oh my god, we played and and what was this halftime? I think it was like twelve four or something at halftime for them. <laughs> like literally every shot they took went in. They started. The only thing that saved us is when you get a situation like that, everybody wants to score. So they started shooting from like center. The guy's like, I got the ball. I'm shooting. I want to score. They, you know, it could have been 20 to 4 if they had just taken better quality shots. But everybody said, this goalie's horrible. We shoot it on net. You're going to score. So who so, won? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. You know who won. <laughs> so we were down at half, and, and their goalie shows up, Ted Sawicki, the time All-Pro. Um, you know, one of the few Canadian, pure Canadian goalies in the league. And he shows up halftime, uh, a van full of guys with the rest of our players. They quickly throw on their pads. We come out. We ended up winning, I think, 1916. And we came back and won, won the first game. And uh, it set the tone for the next three or four years. And, and – you know, it wasn't the only crazy story. They they had a game the year before, I think, where they played with hockey goalies. Um, I think it was Detroit and and Philly. Well, it was wasn't it hockey goals? Hockey, yeah, hockey goals. Hockey there used goals. to be one piece of turf that they transported around the league, 
and the one piece of turf with the goals was on the back of a truck and the, and the, the goals fell off. So when it showed up and they put the turf down, the goals were nowhere to be found. Yeah. And so they had, to, they had to use something. So they used hockey goals. I think Dwight Mekke, the goalie for the yeah. Philadelphia Wings, was in the goal. And ultimately, they all thought the score was going to be crazy. And it, it actually didn't end up being that bad. Yeah. It was score. <laughs> Shooting to the outside again. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, now I think that would be a little bit different if you played with a hockey goal. But, you know, who knows? Cali BBQ is proud to be an official sponsor of your San Diego Seals. Buy our slow-smoked barbecue at any Seals home game or online anytime at www.calibbq.media. Hey, uh, let's shift gears a little bit because obviously Detroit uh, was the start of your careers. And you guys, you know, Paul, you were living in Syracuse. And Gary, you moved on to Baltimore for biz- both for business reasons that were, you know, lacrosse related. And, and your focus shifts kind of at that time in your lives from, you know, you're both playing, but but your business lives shift. And, and Gary started coaching, and, and Paul, he started with manufacturing. And that's kind of evident today in, in where your paths has led you. But it's always kind of the touch point has always been in the game of lacrosse. Um, but just talk to me a little bit about kind of where those careers kind of started to diverge and your interests started to go in different different play, different ways. Well, I, I decided I got uh... – finished up at Syracuse and decided to move down to Baltimore. I had friends down there um, and wanted to, to, I was working for STX lacrosse, which was centered in, in, and Paul was as well at the time. And they were, they were located down in Baltimore and along with friends. And I thought it'd be a nice change from the snow of Syracuse to go back. And I said, uh, you know what, I'm not going back ever to Syracuse because it's too cold amazingly um <laughs> yes it snowed the, yesterday i believe um but uh moved down to baltimore got married started you know started a family you know changed got into coaching you know got lucky with that and got an opportunity to coach at the uh, university of maryland on the women's side got introduced to that i had two lovely kids and and kicked off and Paul was uh, in Syracuse. He was established. He stayed here with his wife. And um, Paul, you know, we, we kind of worked together for a couple of years, even though we lived in Baltimore and Syracuse. Um, we both represented SDX lacrosse, and Paul went into to working for them. And, and then, Paul, you decided to make a move and go out on the, with a different company. Right? Yeah, well, I, I had originally started with them in uh, promotions and sales and wanted, really wanted to get into product development and product design. So, you know, I hung in there with them for three years in the sales role, kept trying to get in to get my foot in the door as a product development or product design guy. And, mm-hmm. and at the end of the day, they, they went out and hired a really smart guy from uh, MIT, rightfully so. Um, so I knew that door was closing. So I figured I better, you know, I better leave SDX and start making moves if I want to be in manufacturing. So that's what I did. I, I quit SDX and, uh, went on to, uh, develop product for a baseball softball company out of Albany, New York, where I live today, which is why I live here. So, so you know, I just want to point out because I, I don't know that, that most of the people that are going to watch this and, and who knows how many of those people there are, but at the end of the day, 
most of the product design developments that have hit the market in lacrosse uh, can be traced back to you, you know, goofing off with a stick at some point in your past or a helmet, by the way, because the current <laughs> Cascade helmet was, uh, I mean, th that's a, that story in and of itself is unbelievable because it started out with you trying to play around with the, with a, a rafting helmet, if I remember, and the current Cascade design, which has developed over a number of years, was really your baby early on. The offset head, which, you know, I know Warrior had a patent on that. Maybe we can't talk about it legally. Who knows? But ultimately, you guys, when you bent your shafts, you know, the cant on the shaft, you guys were way ahead of the time on a lot of things and ultimately permeated or has permeated throughout your career to the extent that you can probably trace a number of the innovations in the game of lacrosse back to Paul Gate. But Gary, I'm right, right? He, he, everything. Uh, absolutely. You know, goes back uh, to Paul Gate screwing around with a stick. You know, yeah. we both started young in that, like real young. We, we, Wait, we this hit. isn't about you. You're supposed to talk about him. I just I am. I, I am. And you know, we both did that. We did. You know, it started young for Pauly. Pauly was a, a guy, he grew up in a cabin in the woods and he had a wooden stick that he learned to rebuild and he got into making his own pockets, making sure they were right. And he did it all. And then when we got to Syracuse, you know, he conceptually came up with the idea of making equipment padding that actually fit together. It was amazing. And at the time, you know, the, the pads were designed as one unit, shoulder pads, kind of upper arm pads, everything all on one. And even in lacrosse before that, the shoulder pads and arm pads were all connected. And I, I just remember Paul saying, it'd be great if you could piece what you like about the pads together and not have everything all attached. So that was a concept I know that he took right to SDX when we started there and created the, the, the first set of rib pads, shoulder pads, um, arm pads that all fit together and you could take pieces on and off to make it as protective as you wanted. So that was certainly uh, one of the first innovations. And, and then, you know, working on the issues with the offset head and that, that ended up being a huge lawsuit um, that both of us were involved in. Um, and it all started from the, the bent handles, you know, and certainly not one of our original ideas, but growing up as kids, I remember Kevin Alexander, Ron McNeil, all these great old laxers from Canada that used to steam or curve their handle. And when the field sticks came out, the limo bend their handle to get the offset feel. And that's kind of how that all started. And that kind of blew up between STX, Brian Lacrosse, and eventually Warrior when they got involved in it. And uh, ended up, uh, Warrior ended up with the patent through all the lawsuits. Uh, I think they bought Brian and what Brian had. And we battled through that. But that, that certainly, I think, can be linked back to Pauly and, and his creative ideas of why it worked. I think one of the things that Paul did well is he always explained, you know, why do we do this when we could do it this way and it'd be better? It made perfect sense. Yeah. I wish, I wish you spent more time with the National Lacrosse League Board of Governors. Hey, Holly, <laughs> tell me about, tell me the helmet story. Well, um, let me think. I was living in Syracuse. 
Cascade is, was based out of Syracuse. At, at the time, they were called Sport Helmets. And um, I had a relationship with the people that, you know, ran the company there. So I, when I was bored as a sales rep for SDX, I'd stop in and we'd chat. And I was always taking their helmets apart and b assembling different parts from different helmets to make my own. I always, well, you know, at the time when we finished school, the helmets were big. They were the big bubble helmets. So what I would do is I would go and get an interior foam pad out of a helmet that had very little offset and put it in the big bubble helmet so it seemed a lot smaller, you know, uh, and change out, uh, I think in college, like change out the face mask so you get the bigger eye openings on the old mask and the new ones had smaller ones. So I always put an old mask on a new helmet because at the time the uh, rules allowed that still. So I did that. So just through the process of trying to make the helmet I had to use better and knowing they were in Syracuse, I developed that relationship. And then one day I walk in and there's all these goofy little round helmets. And I'm like, what are these? They're all, uh, we're getting into whitewater rafting. And if you've ever seen the whitewater rafting helmets, they're pretty goofy looking. And I'm like, well, you can certainly improve on the looks. You know, they're, they're little, they're tiny, and they're round, you know. So um, as they developed, they've, they brought in all the competitor samples. And I literally went through the box and picked out half a dozen, grabbed a face mask, which I had ordered direct from Cooper Softball. I, I think I actually sold those to a bunch of guys too, but a lot of the pro guys used them. So the Cooper Softball mask, I put on a whitewater rafting helmet. And I went through five or six of these helmets and I found one that I thought was good and it's nice. But in the meantime, they were still developing their product. So as I tried these helmets, I kept convincing them, you guys, we're onto something here. This is a great idea. Of course, they're all like, you're nuts. You're crazy. There's no way. And, and my teammates, they thought I was ridiculous. I mean, I don't know if Steve, you were ever on a team or saw me in a game during that time. You know, you see a guy out there with the old round little helmet and face mask. You look a bit different. Yeah, <laughs> so, I mean, look, you were doing – look, you guys wore Under Armour before anybody else because Kip gave it to you, right? I mean, you guys are wearing Under Armour. I, we all still have from the 2006 championships, we all still have Under Armour sitting somewhere – that with the giant UA logo that's, that's now much cooler and sleeker than it was then. But, you know, the, the, helmets, uh, the helmet was, was a big one because, I mean, obviously it changed the focus from a, you know, a, you try and explain to kids now when you, when you coach, cut to the strings and they all look at you like you got four heads. Uh, old guys will know that reference, but young guys don't because you took a rafting helmet, put a mask on it, and revolutionized an entire industry. So pretty, uh, pretty amazing stuff. Talk, talk to me a little bit about your relationship with Tommy Marichek and, and why he's called Hollywood. Um, because really that's the essence of the story is we all love the guy, but tell us why he's called Hollywood. <laughs> Hollywood. Well, he's pretty. <laughs> he was always, always checking his hair, always making sure he looked good. There wasn't a mirror I don't think I can remember for about five or six years him walking by a mirror without taking 30 seconds just to check out how he looked 
fucked and how his hair was. Oh. And uh, he, 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 uh, windows, you name it. <laughs> yeah, anything reflective. reflective. <laughs> anything with a reflection. A quick break. This episode is sponsored by Manscaped.com. Manscaped is the only men's brand dedicated to below-the-waist grooming and hygiene. If you've been listening to our channel for a while, you know that we are big fans of Manscaped and their Perfect Package Essentials Kit, which is the world's finest all-in-one manscaping kit that makes manscaping safe and easy. And just when you think they've got it all figured out, they take it to the next level. I'm excited to be one of the first to confirm that after 18-plus months of research and development, the new Lawnmower 3.0 Waterproof Body Trimmer has just been released and comes with a ton of new upgrades. Get 20% off plus free shipping from your Perfect Package 3.0 purchase when you use promo code SEALS20 at manscaped.com. That's code SEALS20 for 20% off at manscaped.com. Now, back to the pod. So after Detroit, you guys move on and and go to – you're traded to Philadelphia. And and the trade um, was a bit of a shim-sham – and ultimately, first of all, the draft was a bit of a shim-sham because yes, how it was. the two greatest <laughs> players in the history of the game end up on the same team is beyond <laughs> me. And I don't get how that happened. But then you got traded. I don't know what you got traded for. We'll talk about Mike French in a, in a little bit because he was the GM of the Wings at the time. But somehow he finagles a trade. GM of the year. Yeah, GM of the year. <laughs> GM of the decade, I think, the greatest deal in the history of the game gets both both uh, Gary and Paul Gate to go play for the Philadelphia Wings. But just talk about that experience because that's where ultimately we came together and, and uh, got to play together. We played against each other our entire, you know, youth career, minor career. You guys went to school. Uh, and then we came, you know, I, I had the opportunity of two, two guys that, that had kicked the crap out of me and, and beat the shit out of me on the floor in junior for a number of years. I got to be on your side for a change. So talk a little bit about – the wings. Well, let's talk about how, you know why we got traded first of all, and it's a great NLL story. Um, so, oh, yeah. second year in Detroit, uh, Buffalo's first year, they bring on Buffalo as a new franchise, and Buffalo is killing it. They're getting big crowds, and about halfway through the season, they start selling out every game. Not that there's a lot of games, but they start selling out the games. Meanwhile, in Detroit, we were in first place, and at that point, we had already clinched a championship game berth because they were just going to yes. take two best records and have a championship game. So us being in Detroit, having a good year, we had clinched, and now we were waiting to see who we were going to play. You well, know who we were going to play? We were going to play New York. That's right. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> New York. <laughs> Yeah, right. So what happens is uh, they go ahead and in the middle of the season change the playoff format. Obviously, yes. Yeah, they went from the two, two division leaders playing in the championship game to uh, a four-team format where the now because Philadelphia is finishing second in their division, uh, which was with us in Detroit, and, and Buffalo's finishing second in their division behind New York, but Philadelphia and Buffalo have the largest attendance. Now, There's, correct me if I'm wrong, but at the time, there was only six teams in the league, so you had two divisions, right? Three and yep. three. Yeah. Three and three, six teams. So it goes to the fourth so that 
to host the game at the time was if you that final game was based on attendance the team with the largest attendance got to host the championship game so they go into this new format because they're going oh my god we're walking away from the potential of a game or two with sellout crowds where we can make a bunch of money in buffalo and philly in buffalo and philly well the one and two teams both lost the consolation was we're going to add two more teams. We're going to do a semifinal, but the two teams in first place get to host the semifinal with the hopes that one of the teams with the higher attendance would win. Well, sure enough, the number two team in each division upset the number one, and it ended up being Philadelphia, Buffalo in the championship, and Buffalo won the first. And it was, uh, that was, you know, their first championship. And and there were also a lot of crazy rules, as you know, Steve, the number of Canadians allowed on a team. You know, if you were, and all of a sudden they made a rule that if you, Buffalo's a border team, so they could have unlimited Canadians, whereas a team down in Baltimore or Philly or, you know, couldn't. And 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 the native players didn't count against the Canadian, no matter what border. Across the border without any problems. The native players were allowed to, they were non Canadians, right? So, yeah, so what it really comes down to is you got Russ Klein, Chris Fritz, two guys start a league that are in the event business doing tractor pulls and monster trucks, and they're making up the rules with no sports in mind. They're just, they're thinking, how can we maximize to make this event so we can make some money? And, and it the process did, destroyed the Detroit market. It yeah. destroyed the Detroit market. It and did. they had to trade you guys to one of the big markets. <laughs> that was exactly what they did. They, when we first went to Detroit, they saw it as an emerging market, and they, they saw some good attendance. So they put us both there with the idea of maybe we can sell out in Detroit and create this huge market here. And, and that didn't – you know, because they only had Philadelphia as a huge market at the time. And then Buffalo came after Detroit and kind of replaced the idea of, well, we can't do in Detroit. So then they said, well, Buffalo's already really good. So let's keep them together. They just won the championship. We'll move the gates to Philadelphia, the, the next big market. And blockbuster trade, I think it was a bag of balls and a couple of extra goals or something that got traded for us. Um, but magically we got, we got there and, you know, the rules started changing and, and players, you know, we were still weren't getting paid much as you know, Steve, and, and, you know, this is really where we get into the, the, you know, one of Paul's greatest legacies to me is creating the national lacrosse league. Well, I used, I told a story the other day and I haven't told it a whole lot, but I do remember winning in 1994 in Buffalo. And we couldn't get the cup on the floor because they were raining quarters at us. But none of us <laughs> would leave the floor because we were only making 83 bucks a game. So we were all trying to pick up the quarters. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, I mean, don't, don't jump ahead because, you know, we got traded. No, no, we're to... skipping that story. No, no, no. <laughs> no, Because no. let me tell you, I have one great memory from Philadelphia. And you know what it is, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> we told that story already. 
No, I haven't. <laughs> no, I know you haven't, but that's somebody else did. Oh, on the last it's, episode, it's, it's, it's been on every episode. <laughs> it was such a great day for you. It was your first game in the NLL. I mean, you asked me that question. I'm just letting them know uh, what your first game was like. <laughs> I do remember once I, I happened to, you know, and for those people that haven't heard it, I hit my head on the glass. Okay, that's the end of the story. But <laughs> – <laughs> once I once I got up, I I had some blood running down my face, and the first person I see is is kind of the guy that had you know he wanted me on his line because he wanted me to get him open and help him set picks, and so Paul Gate is, is you know I'm I'm excited because Paul had taken me aside and said hey look you know if you want to make it this league get me open I think is what he's <laughs> I don't remember that I, I think. <laughs> so we ended up on the first line. We're supposed to start in the game. My favorite story of this whole thing is we're going to start in this game. I'm like, man, I'm starting my first game. I end up going to the locker room for 10 stitches. But before that, I get up and I look at you, and you just looked at me and went, go clean yourself up. <laughs> yeah. So, who, who has to – throw their jersey away before the game even starts because of the blood rule. I, I love the best part about that story is, what were you, wasn't your mom there or somebody, Steve? And my, they kept I leave, My wife's parents were there. She was my girlfriend at the time. And they were like, who is this fucking guy? <laughs> but but well, wasn't somebody – Somebody looking for Steve. Steve, yeah. where's Steve? He didn't play today. Did you play? Because you had a different jersey on. <laughs> I scored my first goal in the National Crossing. I really need to talk to the stats people at the league about giving me one more goal because I scored it as Mark Gold. <laughs> That's right, Goldie. <laughs> and your poor family didn't even know they asked after the game. Sorry Did you, you didn't play? Get to play, Steve. <laughs> That's a fact. That is a fact. So – I, I do remember one of my, you know, and, and look, I'm a terrible host because we could spend two hours doing this and, and I don't know how many people care, but we might care. But at the end of the day, I'll, one of the things I mostly remember about Gary playing for Philly was that he would show up with, with no stick, no strung stick, an empty head, some string, and a shirt that was always brand new, like in the plastic. <laughs> and so I don't know if it was a theme, but he'd show up, He'd string the stick and warm up. And then after the game, he'd be like hanging the shirt in the shower so it would steam, get the wrinkles out, and ultimately wear it to the post game. So never prepared because normally he was just coming from a Maryland women's game directly to Philly to play, you know, a game. But um, I don't know. You guys talk a little bit about the travel that we used to do back oh, in the day and, and some of all that fun stuff because I'll tell you what, it, it wasn't an easy process it, it was not and I, yeah that's exactly as a coach and and trying to find flights to get from you know Blacksburg Virginia or some crazy places like that where you're playing college lacrosse to find your way to fill it the good thing was most of the teams were in in you know in Long Island New York so you could fly into New York Philadelphia Buffalo so they were decent places primarily in the Northeast at the time. And yeah, you were, you were literally hoping your equipment made it, hoping your gear made it, your clothes, everything. And, uh, you know, I got to the point where, you know, I, you know, I had to string a new stick the day of the game and, and 
all of a sudden I had a good game. So then it was a thing like, let's string a stick before every game and start with a new stick. And it was kind of that whole idea of, of being able to replicate. And back in the day, that was tough to do, you know, traditional yeah. stringing, not mesh and to try and get the stick. So it was, you know, game ready, right. Strung that day, you know, that was one of the things that I know Paul did it quite a bit. And he, he actually, you know, patented a machine that we still use today or a similar type device that, that allows us to string all the sticks the same every time. My so, favorite, my favorite Paul Gates stringing story is I tricked him into coming out of retirement to play for the Colorado mammoth <laughs> for a year, which ultimately we, we all want to forget. Yeah. He wants to forget, but he pulled that, yeah. he pulled a stick out that he hadn't strung or he hadn't played with and he's shooting with it in warm up and the ball is literally going everywhere. And, and so me and the assistant GM and the head coach are just kind of sitting there looking at each other going, Oh God, Oh, this is not going to be good. <laughs> not going to be good. Yeah. You ended up being pretty good. Not bad. Yeah. I do want to forget that round. The body wasn't capable or, or willing to step up and, do its job. I still had faith in you. Uh, I mean, we had some great times with the Washington Power. It was certainly a bit tenuous from a financial perspective, but that <laughs> the, the rivalry, and, and for those that don't know, and, and Gary, I don't want to speak out of school, but ultimately we had to pay the rent one night at the U.S. Air Arena or, or the Cap Center uh, for, the Phil, uh, for the Washington Power, and Gary had to dig into his uh, – into his tax fund that he had saved for a number of, of months <laughs> to pay his taxes to be able to pay the rent so he could open the building. So um, that, that was a, a time in our lives when uh, we were, we were literally growing the game uh, one game at a time. And, and if it's not for the Washington power, we don't have the Colorado mammoth and the, and the ultimate change in structure. And, and yeah, I mean, you guys were in Pittsburgh back in the day and the, well, I the think night. there's lots of stories. There's lots of stories, but I think, uh, you know, we miss a big opportunity here to talk about, you know, the formation of the NLL from the MILL. And, and my recollection, you know, of, of the players battling with the, the two owners from Kansas City and finally, you know, deciding to, you know, form a, a, a players association. And so this is the summer of 1997, just to clarify. And the union had started in like 93, 94. Yeah. It was the MILPA, M-I-L-L-P-A. And then we go into a negotiating session or year in the summer of 97. So that's the birth of, of the NLL. Talk, keep talking about that because it's yeah, well. a – really intriguing story from the start of the league perspective. Yeah, I, I, I give 100% credit to, to Paul Gate for starting the NLL. You know, like what happened, my, my recollection again was that Paul had met with uh, a, a gentleman in Syracuse that owned the, the minor league hockey team, uh, Howard Dolgan, was it? Howard Dolgan. Yeah. And, and he had a bunch of buddies that had – own other in Rochester, the minor league hockey team. And they had rallied four or five potential owners together that came to Paul and said, Hey, we want to start a competing league. Um, what do you think, Paul, maybe you could take it from here. 
Yeah, well, uh, what was it? Frank Duras, uh, yeah. Steve Donner, Howard Dolgan, and I think one more I can't call. But yeah, they I had uh, I had started a business venture with Howard Dolgan. I opened a retail across store, and he was one of my investors in the business. So that's how I got to know him. But he ran a minor league hockey team in Syracuse, and he knew all Still the does. other hockey league owners. So. Yeah, he's like he was aggressive and he wanted to compete and he wanted to own a lacrosse team and and uh, you know Chris and Ross didn't want outside people into their nice league that would seem to be working at least. Well, in that the was a single single entity ownership, right? So Russ and Chris owned all yep. the teams in the league. And back to the story about the Detroit, you know, Philadelphia yep. playoffs is they could make any decision they wanted to. And God bless them. Like, we all owe our entire professional lacrosse career to those guys, and we've acknowledged that a number of times. But yeah. this was a massive departure uh, in, in that process. So, yeah, continue, Paul. Yeah, the guys were – you know, these guys were saying, we want to form a legitimate lacrosse league where you guys get paid, you have the ability to earn money, endorsements, et cetera. And to me, it sounded like a big step up. You know, get, you know, a professional league that's run by professional sports people. And I was all in. Um, so now the battle is how do we convince the Players Association to jump on? So I literally went around and called all of the top players from each team and signed them up for the new league. So that's. Wait, wait a second. You did? Well, I, I, <laughs> I didn't get a call. <laughs> Well, I, I think I called Gary. You and Gary were playing together, right? Yeah, we, I was rallying our side. Yeah, yeah. Gary was – his job was to rally you. I think he did it. So, you were in. But, yeah, so we, we got a bunch of players to sign. Um, it, it created a, a, a weird situation, though, because qu quickly thereafter, Gary and I were signed by the league as – I don't know what our title was. We were player – I don't know what we were, but we, we worked for the league when it first started. So we could never be part of the players association because it was we, just a fugazi way to get you guys more money. Well, <laughs> what it was, was it was their way. They, they offered that if I would go out and sign these players and get them on board. So that's what happened was they, we formed this relationship. They offered up, future cash if I could get everyone on board. And part of the, the deal was, sorry, go ahead. Part of the deal was that I was playing in Rochester for um for that team and I would be allowed to change teams when they changed the league. That was part of it because I had been playing on the road so long and Dolgan wanted a team in Syracuse. So yeah. it was agreed by all the owners that and when we signed on to help them develop this league, that I would be able to go to Syracuse and Gary, you would be able to go to Baltimore. That was, that was the big request I wanted was to be able to be a free agent. So I could go to the team that was closest to home or to, to you know, decrease the, the amount of travel because we were doing midweek drives uh, from you know, Baltimore, God knows wherever you were to the practice facility. Like you talked about, you get home at two, three o'clock in the morning after practicing, get up, go to work and do it again on the weekend for the game. So 
that free agency was what I really went after. And, and, you know, with the new league, it was all going to be great. You got, you know, we had four or five teams ready to go, but then Russ and Chris came around and they decided to merge the league. And that's when, you know, things got a little gray and, and it got a little interesting because all of a sudden to make the, the deal happened between the new league and the, and the MILL, they wanted to revoke what they promised to Paul and I, you remember that Paul, they all of a sudden it's like, we'll do Russ and Chris were like, we'll do the deal, but we're, we're keeping the gate brothers on the teams that we own. So they merged and Philadelphia and Buffalo stayed with the, uh, with the original uh, MILL and they wanted to keep us in Philadelphia. So, or Paul was in Rochester. Paul was in Rochester. Buffalo, Buffalo ended up, they were part of the deal because it was Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, and Boston. And then at the last minute, Boston kind of pulls out and doesn't play. Yeah. And Philadelphia, New York, and Baltimore continued, I think, and, and Rochester, or no. Anyway, whatever happened, happened, and ultimately you guys got the rights to go on. And, you yeah. know, Paulie goes to, to uh, there. What a mistake that was. What a, what a mistake that was. Gator <laughs> goes to Baltimore yeah. and, and leaves the wings and, and has, you know, an illustrious career with the wings. And, uh, or sorry, with, with, with the Thunder. Uh, and then they play there. We go to the championship in 98. In a, the very first best two out of three series, uh, we <laughs> Philadelphia yeah. Wings to the Baltimore Thunder. But to talk a little bit before we move on, because we don't have a ton of time left. I mean, I guess it's a podcast we got all day. But at the end of the day, the first time you guys ever played against each other was the, the 90, I think, 95 final. Um, it may have been an earlier game, but first time you guys play each other in a final it is really the first time you've ever been on opposite teams, right? Paul, I was trying to think about this. I couldn't remember for the life of me the first time we ever played against each other. <laughs> you know, look at him. Blank I'm pretty sure it was that. that. Scrimmage, yeah. Um, well, I do know it was before that season, we, in 90, when I went to play for the Six Nation Chiefs and you stayed in Brooklyn. Yes, that was that, the beginning. That was it in Canada, I believe. Um, but that was a big game, the 97 champion, or sorry, the, the 95 championship was billed as this big game that you guys were playing against each other for the first time, at least in the, in the pro league. Yep. And, uh, and, and ultimately, we win in an overtime, and I <sighs> – if you follow Dallas Elliott at all, and you guys probably don't, but he shows all these games. Um, and, and last night I literally clicked on a game that was like the next year in 96 was the first time we had played back after that champ. And they interviewed everybody that played in the championship game and what happened. They showed the highlights. And I remember it a little differently than, than what I actually saw on the screen. So I won't talk a whole lot. <laughs> that about happens. But I, I re all I remember was setting a pick on Reggie Thorpe and Gary came off the pick and caught the ball and scored. So ultimately in the years that I played, that's probably my crowning achievement is getting it in someone else's way. There you go. Um, yeah, no, that was, that was a heck of a game. That was back and forth. It was tight. And, um, 
you know, it came down to one goal and, and who got the last shot. I think Gary and I were both pretty hot that game. So it literally was who got the, the last shot. So uh, Gary, Gary got the first shot in OT. So, oh, Steve, you'll love this, but you know that's when when Paul left. You know, oh, yeah. the, the the gift that that Paul gave me was a chance to play with Steve Govett, the guy that gets you open. <laughs> so I remember he's like. I think Paul was chirping because I was doing well in the points or something. He goes, yeah, that's because you got Steve and all he does is get you open. If I had Steve, I would be <laughs> we'd do a lot better too. I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> well, my day. We can end now. So that, thanks for coming to the CFL podcast. Steve and I did a lot of work to figure out how to set a good pick and roll. I mean, we spent a solid two years at it. We did. It was a lot of fun. I tell you what, though, I got to give a lot of credit to Dave Huntley, who, if you guys remember, Dave Huntley would chirp us all the time about how we cheated and, uh, <laughs> and how the wings were cheating because we had this, uh, this process and, and, and then we would do, set these picks that no one could defend and everybody does it now. But, uh, you know, it, it, was, uh, it was certainly a fun time. I, I want to move on a little bit. Uh, and talk just about you're, – you're in an NLL locker room. Who is the last guy – you know, who do you not want to sit next to in an NLL locker room? <laughs> All right, moving on. Yeah. You know what? For me, it was easy. I didn't want to sit beside Jamie Hanford. i got to be honest. <laughs> Funny, J. Jalbert said the same thing. You know, he's walking around naked. He's – you know, in your face. I'm like, so I never sat near Jamie. So that was, I, I was good with that. Paulie, how about you? Well, you know, Rodney Tapp, I think, would have to be my guy. Oh, you know, oh, I got a great nobody needs to see that. Nobody. <laughs> oh, my God. Tapper, Tapper, Tapper was, he was in the man grooming before it was a thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, he, I remember being in Victoria one time, and Tapper's in there. It changed. I walk in, and he's in the, the back shower area with his girlfriend. And his girlfriend's trimming him, man-grooming him. And I'm just like, what the hell is going on? It was unbelievable. But Rodney, Rodney was a good one. He was a piece of work. <laughs> Another quick break. Coronado Brewing Company is proud to be the official craft beer partner of the Seals. Enjoy fan favorite Orange Avenue Wit and their new Salty Crew Blonde Ale all season long and visit coronadobrewing.com to find their award-winning beers near you. Stay coastal. Cheers. Well, I'm going to say a few names, and I want you guys to react to the names, uh, but just uh, your first reaction when I say the name Terry Bullen. Old term. Old school. For me, he was, you know, uh, he was like a huge spider that, you know, he, he was an amazing defender, six foot five, something like that, huge wingspan. And that was back in the league. Uh, oh, that's not one word, is it? But anyway, he was <laughs> tough to beat because that was back in the days when there was no such thing as holding. Holding was you could hold the guy, drag him down, but if the ball – fell out of his stick it wasn't a holding penalty so that was the amazing holding rules of the early days Paulie Terry Bullen 
Terry Bolin, you know, just a large, you know, it reminds me of old school because I think he played in Brooklyn, I believe. Or, or right? Yeah, I played with him there, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, that whole team in Brooklyn when I played, they seemed, they were all old. They, and they were all <laughs> old school. And Terry was part of that team, so that's what I think of when I think of Terry Bolin. Is he came from that old group in Brooklyn that I played one regular season game with and we ended up winning a national championship, you know? So I, I played with the old guys, the old school guys, John. Yeah. Well, you know, well, now, now his daughter. Go ahead. Now his daughter's an all American at Denver. Oh, okay. great, great little player plays for team Canada as well. So yeah, love the lineage there. Dallas Elliott. The cartoon man. <laughs> no. <laughs> Dallas was amazing. The greatest goalie I've ever played with. Um, but he was always drawn as cartoons. Um, I always, you know, loved to see what he was drawn next. He loved his Spider-Man. He loved his, uh, uh, all his artwork. And I think he's, he's done a bunch of, bunch of projects over the years for, for the NLL and for the wings and, and, uh, you know, all-time great goalie, greatest ever legend. Yeah, he was one of the last goalies. Him and Dwight, you know, they were one of the last two goalies that moved. You know, they moved around. They baited you. They left openings, and then they closed the gap. You know, the goalies aren't really like that nowadays. They're big well, and they dress up and they take up the net, you know. So, you know. You guys probably never had to worry about this with Dallas, but – you know, he he was a, a baiter, right? And he was the best at it. So, you know, I would always be trying to shoot for the spot that he was baiting me to shoot at. Some might call him a master baiter, but uh, <laughs> I I could never hit the spot, so I'd always hit him in the head. You guys probably didn't hit him in the head. And to watch him go ballistic when you hit him in the head was something uh, oh to watch. Anyway, tell me about Mark Millen. He's one of the best Americans to play. You know, and he, he was one of those guys you hated playing against because he, 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 he played with an attitude, um, you know, and, and, you know, just got the job done, put the ball in the net, you know. Well, yeah, athletic. I mean, I think his – when I think about him, I think about his turn. He had one of the best turns, the quickness, you know. He could break ankles when he was young and – and that was his trademark, you know, get you out of position by turning quick and going inside or going outside. And so a guy, great, sh great shot on the run, you know, like he'd be sweeping or come out of the corner and he could shoot while he's going full speed. So a guy that you guys played with at the Cuse um, and ultimately played for the New York Saints for a while, Pat McCabe. A legend for, you know, just all-time great defender, the best thing about him is he was the master of getting beat and making the trail check. Yeah, I mean, he, he's a lot like Dallas. He would bait you. You know, you think you're open. You think you're going to get the shot off, and he would just wait for you to bring your stick back. He would put you in a spot where you think you're going to get a shot, knowing full well that he had the ability to take the ball away before you did. So the next guy is, you know, obviously a legend um, in the news in the last – couple weeks but um he when he when i played my first game against him in uh in indoor 
he was playing for the Baltimore Thunder, and it was a preseason game, and he hit Paul <laughs> from behind or on a on a breakaway, and he it was kind of like one of those uh, uh, players that, that you know he, he was a defenseless player we call them now and probably got smoked and he, I think he put him in a coma and Dave Petromala who you guys had a long history with uh, in college and and US Team USA and Team Canada and but but talk about Dave Petromala's career as an indoor player he was a fierce competitor you know that that's what he was he he hated to lose He'd do whatever it, it took to win, and he was an amazing athlete, and uh, he was a very good indoor player. You know, he was amazing. Could have played for a long time. Yeah, he, uh, you know, he, he's a great. I mean, I, I go back to, you know, before indoor, I go back to, you know, championship games in college when he marked Gary, and, you know, that was the matchup, the greatest defender against the greatest, you know, offensive player. And when he came into indoor, that changed a little, but it wasn't quite as dominant as a defender in indoor, but he certainly was athletic and he was big and, you know, and he's a smart guy. Obviously most guys that get into coaching are smart lacrosse players. He had a good uh, sense for the game and he picked up on the indoor game pretty quick. I'm going to have Quint Kasnick on this show and, uh, and talk a little bit about Quint's career as an indoor player because he didn't play goalie but uh he certainly he was at the front you know he was on the uh the front lines of the games when Syracuse played Hopkins as a goaltender and watched those uh those matchups with you guys and and Petro front hand, you know firsthand so I can't wait to talk to him about that but talk about Quint as an indoor player oh I got to play with him and he was a defender uh super athletic you know your typical wrestler converted to lacrosse player, played goalie, but he was tenacious and, you know, wasn't the biggest guy, but he gave you everything he had. And that's, uh, you know, that's why he had to be on the field because he was relentless and, and went after and played tough D and got after the loose balls. Yeah. Full of energy. He played that way as a goalie too. You know, he's very active outside the cage and, you know, he brought that over in the indoor when he was playing defense. I think one of the things that, that I, as, as I've started to do this and talk about players and look at, at players that played in the MILL and, the, and, and then ultimately into the NLL is, is the list, the laundry list of players that are now college head coaches that played in the old mill or the National Lacrosse League that probably at some point in their past um, you know, playing indoor has influenced the way they teach the game in outdoor and have had success. John Tillman, uh, Ricky Sewell, Dave Petromala, you know, the, the list goes on, you know, Chris Bates, John, uh, Brian Volk. It, it's pretty amazing to look in the history of, of our league and realize the influence it's had on the NCAA. Yeah, well, it, it was pro lacrosse. You know, the MILL was the, the only opportunity to play pro. So any guy coming out of college, you know, that was their shot. You know, let's go make some money. Let's play the best lacrosse. And, uh, you know, so the, those guys that were in the game and, and as a coach and players, they wanted to play. And uh, now that you, there's opportunities for those similar type players come out of college and they go on and some of them make a decision just to, to play the outdoor game um, and, and they don't try and play both. So 
the world's changed a little bit, but back in those old days, it was uh, M-I-L-L or nothing. So I want to move quickly on to two other guys, and I know both of them um, influenced our, our careers, one off the floor and one on the floor. But, uh, Paulie, talk about Jimmy Rogers. Jimmy Rogers. He was the man off the floor. I mean, he could uh, start a party and no matter where you went. He knew everyone. He knew how to get things going. He was an entertainer. A lot of fun. I actually stories around him. The beauty of Jimmy Rogers, when when I asked Jay Jalbert this the same question, he says if Las Vegas was a person, it would be <laughs> Rogers. Yes. Let's talk about John Tavares. JT, uh, he's the, one of the greatest ever. You know, just amazing. You know, and uh, I, was, I think both of us, all of us, so fortunate to play against them. You know, he, you know, he was the face of the Buffalo Bandits and still is. And uh, he's done it all. He created that great uh, championship culture down there, and he continues to do that. And uh, you know, I, I have nothing but high regard and respect for his talent and, and him as a person. Amazing. So Paulie, when you get, you know, all the shade because Gary, you know, his imposing figure is so large and it's the Gary Gates show and number 22 and you get forgotten in the whole mix. I get very upset about that, but you know, when, when we talk about the goat in lacrosse and the, and the ultimate question for most NLLers, and fans is Gary Gate or John Tavares. I know you have a hand in that discussion, but what do you say? Well, it's a no-brainer for me. I mean, I played with John um, in indoor. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> so we can move on. <laughs> I've got three good seasons with him, and one thing we learned was we probably shouldn't be on the same line. <laughs> yeah, but we came to terms with it. We were good after that. <laughs> We needed two balls. <laughs> yeah, no question. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, Johnny had a great career, and he, his style is different. He was so smooth. You know, he played around the outside. He was tricky. He was a great feeder. He, he did it all in a different way, not so physical. He was uh, slick. You know, he could find holes, uh, you know, create holes for himself, find holes, and really create a lot of great opportunities for himself that, you know, put him in a great spot to shine. And, and that's the way he played. And, and I think Gary went out and was a little different. He, he created, he made opportunities. He didn't find them. You know what I mean? Like he went out and created space and tried to work with his teammates to get the guys to play. And if that doesn't work, Gary was big, tough and strong and he could find a way to slice through the middle. And, yeah. And look, I yeah. say this all the time. And unfortunately, Paulie, I can't say this about you, but Gary was the greatest defensive player I ever played with in indoor, uh, in box. And and I think a lot of people don't know that, um, and don't you don't get credit for that, Gary. And and I think uh, it's it's worth noting when you when you do this because I don't know how many other times we'll ever do this, but you know it's worth noting publicly that you know when when you see the Last Dance right now with Michael Jordan and talking about his defensive ability. Um, I think that gets lost in the mix. And, and if I was Dennis Rodman in the process with, with you as Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, uh, you know, I got to be Dennis Rodman in that mix. So um, <laughs> I like it. We just green hair. <laughs> at the yes. end of the day, I, 
I think that uh, that you that you don't get any credit for your defensive abilities, and and uh, it was a it was pretty amazing to watch you strip a ball from a guy. But I do want to change gears, and we're we're kind of getting close to the end. So I appreciate the time you guys have spent, and hopefully our listeners are staying with us. But um, they haven't all fallen asleep because they may be all over seventy years old. But anyway, <laughs> um, the point I want I want to who what one actor would play both of you in a movie? Uh, Joey would be one. Uh, in the old days, Paul used to get uh, compared to Sylvester Stallone, <laughs> the sleepy eyes back in the day. But Matt Joey. LeBlanc, Matt LeBlanc. Oh, Joey. <laughs> Joey. That's funny. <laughs> how you doing? <laughs> uh, Paul, how about you? Who plays, who, what one actor plays both of you in a movie? Oh, God. Um, I don't know if he's an actor. What about that guy uh, that's on uh, diners, drive-ins, and <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can come on my the white show. Hat. I have a cooking show. You can there come you on go. that and talk about it. There you go. <laughs> hey, people, people would say that one a lot about Gary and I. I know, I get it. The the last one I want to talk about, and, and just you know, we've been pretty serious most of the time here, so I don't want to change gears to be more serious. But if there's one story in lacrosse today that you're going to make a 30 for 34 and you guys get to pick the topic uh and 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 commission a project to make the 30 for 30 what's that story what what story do you think deserves to be told uh in in this world well i mean i have one but and it's it's the truth around the 1990 syracuse national championship team you know, they've done a partial version of that, but at some point, you know, uh, the full version of that would be interesting in the 30 for 30. Yeah. They, I, they told I, part I, of the story, right? Just to be clear, they told part of the story about where the trophy went, and but, but they didn't really get into the meat of the story. No, no, they didn't get into the politics behind the scene, why it all happened. I mean, they, they briefed on some of it, but – you know, a university trying to protect its image and its credibility and sacrificing its, some of its own people to do so. You know, that's the story that wasn't told. You know, my poor coach, Roy Simmons, you know, his integrity was, was dragged through the mud, you know, not to mention the way I felt during that whole situation. You know, it didn't leave me with a good taste in my mouth about the athletic department at Syracuse. And I haven't said anything since then, and, and so the reason I wasn't part of that story is I didn't want to badmouth Syracuse University, but there's certainly a lot that uh, was not told in that story. So we won't ask Gary to comment on that because he is gainfully employed by the <laughs> Yes, I am. <laughs> That's awkward. <laughs> walk away from that one right now. But oh, again, I, I will tell you, I think I had to meet with the attorneys before I did any interviews for that. It was, it was amazing. They were still trying to, to deal with it, you know, 20, 20 plus years later, figure it all out. But for me, I would, I would love, you know, when, when, you know, the NLL goes full time and it goes big time, which it is now, but when these players stop having jobs and it really goes to an NHL, NBA type level, I think you got to go back and tell the story of, you know, the beginning and how the NL was formed. I think that would be a great 30 for 30. Um, Cause there's a lot of stories about the negotiations, players, 
you know, the, the John Tavares side, he sided with Russ and Chris and the, the Paul side and, you know, how, how we had a group of players on both sides and brought it all together and, you know, and how, you know, it opened up the door. You know, Steve, that's, that's how, you know, we partnered up. You know, the NLL came along, and, and all of a sudden there was an opportunity to put together a new franchise or take an existing one and create the Washington Power. You know, that story in itself is another 30 for 30. You know? <laughs> that, that story is, uh, yeah, ultimately I've written some chapters of the book, but you know, I'm inspired to write more in that book. But, but look, every person I've had on this show I've asked, uh, what they would do for 30 for 30 and every story has been so interesting and compelling and, and ultimately digging deeper. Uh, one day our sport will be in a position where it's compelling enough and enough consumers out there will, will buy the, the property and buy the project. But um, yeah, I think uh, I'd love to hear every one of these stories. I'd love to hear the 1990 Syracuse story. I think is, is remains intriguing with all the, these characters and I, I think the beauty of the lacrosse in, in our in our world is that there's so many characters, and we probably could have gone on for another two hours if I just started riffing names. Uh, one of the names I forgot to riff, who's going to be a, a a guest on this show in the not too distant future, is Mike French, and and oh, I think we owe him a lot. All three of us owe him a lot from the perspective of you know the Philadelphia Wings and and pro lacrosse and his heritage and, and, and pioneership through that process and, and ultimately with team Canada and, and he set the stage for a lot of things to happen. But, um, Frenchie was a big, obviously influence making me a GM for the first time. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, there's so many characters and I think the characters of the Colorado mammoth or the Baltimore thunder, if, if anybody remembers the Baltimore thunder went to the Pittsburgh crossfire, went to the Washington power and became the Colorado mammoth. And still remains one of the original, you know, four franchises in this league, um, yeah. but is based in Colorado and and kind of, you know, we don't we don't talk enough about kind of the, the formative years through the 2000s of the influence that you guys had in the game and and ultimately on every player, including, uh, you know, guys like John Tavares and John Grant and Casey Powell and, you know, you guys were the were the the heritage, your your goats in my mind, greatest of all time. And I'll say that to John Tavares when he gets on the call as well. So you, know, you probably won't pay attention to that one. So I can do whatever I want. But anyway, look, I love you guys. And, and I appreciate you coming uh, to talk for so long about uh, of all things NLL and lacrosse related. I appreciate it. Uh, and uh, it's been a blast. Hey, Steve, we'll have to do it again down the road because there's a lot more stories to tell out there. A lot of stories. Polly, Uncle yeah. Polly. We didn't tell the front row Polly stories where he parked in the front row of every hotel and left the car there for three days. And, no, and nobody ever towed it. I could never understand how he could get away with this. He always parked in the front row. Yeah, you know, I'm, it's, I've changed a little. I park way back now. I need the exercise. Uh, fellas, like I said, love you. Thank you. And uh, we'll appreciate uh, we'll, we'll talk to you soon, and, and I appreciate you doing this. Thanks, Steve. Steve, thanks for having us, and I look forward to learning a new recipe soon. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks, fellas. Bye.